Good evening, everyone, and uh, thanks for coming out. It's nice to have uh, interest in the subject that we're discussing, and nice to see so many online as well joining us. We all witnessed the events that took place over the past almost weeks now, not a month I don't think yet, but three weeks plus since October the 7th. And we've all witnessed the reaction that has taken place in the world. We may have our own feelings about these events. We may side this way or we may side that way. Tonight, the question is, what does God think? What does the God of the Bible think? The Bible tells us it is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Peter 1.21, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Daniel 2.28, there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. So we come to the Bible, because the Bible is the only book we have, the only book we have that shares with us God's mind on this and many other issues. There is no other revelation that we have, not in our day. Isaiah 55 tells us, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. There is no other book that can claim to have such authority specifically in regards to events that would take place. This also means it's a book that we can test, because this book is full of prophecies. We can look at those prophecies and examine to see if actually it is what it says to be, the Word of God that predicts these things. Now, as far as prophecy is concerned, there are so many that are already accomplished and still coming to pass in our day. And that makes the Bible unique in that it is truly a living Word of God that still is unfolding in our time and hopefully We'll see just a little of that this evening. When we come to the Word, very early on in the first book, in the book of Genesis, God calls out to a man by the name of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he calls him to come out of Ur of the Chaldees and to a place that God would show him. And he calls to Abraham, And Abraham obeys. And Abraham follows God's word and moves to the land as we know it today, Israel. 
Abraham is told that it's through his son Isaac that his, that his descendants would be uh, chosen, that they would be special to God. And we don't have time to go through all those promises this evening, but God promises Abraham the land of Israel and actually much more than just the land of Israel, much of the Middle East, from the great river Euphrates to the river of Egypt. God chooses this man Abraham because he was obedient, as we said. And those promises that God makes with Abraham are the foundation of so much that comes afterwards in the book, in Scripture. They're followed up with promises to Isaac and to Jacob. They're followed up with promises to King David that have all their roots in the promises originally given to Abraham. They're followed up with promises to Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. But the seed that would come from Abraham, the nation that would come from Abraham, was first and foremost those that came through Isaac and Jacob, the nation of Israel. And God speaks to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, and he says, Now if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you will speak to the children of Israel. This is an incredible statement that God makes. That this people would be a peculiar treasure to him. That they would be special. That they would be holy, which means special and separate. And he brings them to the land as we know it, as uh, of Israel. In Deuteronomy 11 and 12, he says, It is a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always on it, from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. This is the land that God said to Abraham that if he was to look up and to look from the place where he was, Northward, southward, eastward, westward. God said to Abraham, for all the land you see, to you will I give it and to your seed forever. This was the land that God cared for more than anywhere else. Quite an incredible statement and quite an incredible thought. And yet it's the land that today is in such turmoil and has a history of conflict unlike almost anywhere else. It is the place where the kings of Israel reigned from. This is a picture uh, of the city of David at the time of Solomon, Jerusalem. And it's important to note in 1 Chronicles 28 and 5, God says, For all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon my son to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. This was actually God's kingdom in the past. So many times in religion we talk of God's kingdom as if it's something in the heavens or something future. But it's good to note that God's kingdom existed in the past. Now, that being said, the nation of Israel was held to a very high standard. 
And God knew that they would not be able to necessarily live up to that standard. But he worked with them oh so hard. But inevitably, as was predicted in the book of Deuteronomy before the nation of Israel ever even entered the land, they would be scattered if they did not obey the commandments of God. They were first scattered and taken out of their land by the Babylonians and then finally in AD 70 by the Romans. Now, that was celebrated. The victory over God's people was celebrated uh, in a number of ways, but one of the ways was the building of the Arch of Titus, depicted here. And if we look on the inside of this triumphant arch, we have a picture of, or uh, a stone carving, of the Jewish people going into captivity. Now, Rome would celebrate its victory over Judea. The question was, would Rome prevail? Would Israel ever have a hope of return? Was this the end of the children of Israel's time in the land? They would be scattered to the four corners of the earth. Thousands of years would go by. Almost 2,000 years would go by. But the prophecies would remain. Jeremiah 31.10 Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Amos 9 And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled out of it, out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord thy God. Isaiah 11.11, that was actually read out at the United Nations in 1948. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, and from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Of course, the first recovery of the Jewish people was under Ezra and Nehemiah. The second, in our own generation, we have witnessed. Even the New Testament would prescribe to this. Luke 21, 24, speaking of the Jewish people, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive unto all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Those are incredible words of Jesus Christ in that prophecy. They would be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. Well, Turn to, if you've got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1.
the burning question for God's people in the past and over centuries has been one that was the question of the apostles after they spent 40 days with Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And he spoke about the kingdom of God, it says, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. And after that time together, the apostles ask the Lord, and they say, Lord, will, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Lord, will it be now? Is this the time? It was not the time for the kingdom to be restored. Jesus Christ, verse 11, would yet still have to go to heaven. And if we turn to chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ would stay in heaven until, until, let's look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 20. And he shall send, now this time the Lord Jesus Christ, in the, in the, uh, in the Acts, Acts record, the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven. And here we read, And he shall send Jesus Christ, God will send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive or hold back. The heavens will hold back until the times of restoration of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The heavens will hold the Lord Jesus Christ back. He will stay there on the right hand of God until the times of the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. The obvious question is answered by Paul then in Romans 11. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. The New King James says, certainly not. You know, over the centuries, many have read these words. These are the writings of Thomas Brightman from 1615. And he says, underlined in red, What? Shall they return to Jerusalem again? There is nothing more certain. The prophets do everywhere directly confirm it and beat upon it. As Acts said, by the, uh, that uh, spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. That is in 1615. That is over 400 years ago. Not just Jews, but Bible students, Christians that read these scriptures from Thomas Brightman to the great physicist Isaac Newton and many others looked at the prophecies and said, the Jews will go home. This is in the New World here in America, as it was then um, just a colony of Great Britain. Increase Mather writes in 1669, the mystery of Israel's salvation, explained and applied. What he's going to discuss in it is, is listed there like a contents. Number one, that the 12 tribes shall be saved. 
And the verse he quotes, we've already read there in the second, uh, in the second red line. Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. He that scattered Israel will gather him. Again and again, students of Scripture have come to the same verses, the same prophecies, and expected the same things. You know, in expecting the Jews to go home, certainly in the time of increased Mather and since, it meant the power that occupied the land of Israel would be removed. Commenting on Revelation 16.12, which we can look at, Increase Mather writes of the drying up of the water of the Euphrates, i.e. the great abatement of the Turkish power. The Ottoman power that occupied the Holy Land would have to be dried up. Turn to Revelation 16 if you've got your scriptures in front of you. Revelation is, uh, is a deep book. It is a book that starts off telling us that it's a book of sign and symbol. But chapter 16, we can see, is a unique time in the book. As we say, because it's a book of sign and symbol, we're not going to dive into all of it. But just to see uh, just a couple of points here. Revelation 16 and verse 12 starts a time period of the sixth angel pouring out his vial or his bowl on the great river Euphrates. The book of Revelation is like an unfolding scroll, a history, so to speak, given in advance. This section that starts in verse 12 runs through to verse 15 and 16. 15, as this is a book from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, verse 15 is when the Lord Jesus Christ says he will come. Behold, I come as a thief. This is a great climax in the book. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments. So we come to this time period, and we could say it's, a, it's going to be a long time period, but it is the time period when Jesus Christ would return. Remember what Acts said. Jesus Christ will come back at the restoration of all things, spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets, i.e., the restoration of the Jewish people back to their land. Now, what Increase Mather realized is what was written here, that the great river Euphrates, and in, and in the prophetic terms, and we can discuss it later if you wish, in prophetic terms, the great river Euphrates is not just the literal river itself, but the power that surrounds the river. So we could say, even though uh, here we are in Brantford, the, gr the Grand River dried up. It would be the great power of, uh, of uh, Cambridge, Kitchener, and Brantford. Um, but here it is the Great River Euphrates that would dry up the power that surrounded that, that, uh, that river, which links back to earlier in the book when the river would overflow its banks. It's the Muslim power that would overflow its banks, so to speak, and would, as the Ottomans pushed forward, would actually go all the way up into Turkey and beyond, into Europe. Here, before Christ comes, that power of the Euphrates would dry up. That the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Increase Mather in 1669 understood that it was speaking of the return of the Jewish people and their leaders. And he said that river Euphrates, that power, the Turk, the Turk, has to 
that power has to be dried up. Now, almost all those that called for the return of the Jewish people in these old writings, almost all called for the drying up of the Euphrates as increase does here. John Thomas, in 1848, writes the following. The restoration of Israel is a most important feature in the divine economy. It is indispensable to the setting up of the kingdom of God, for they are the kingdom, having been constituted such by the covenant of Sinai, as it is written, ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That covenant that God made with them in Exodus that we mentioned already makes this people a special people. They will be a holy nation for God. And the truth is, it's whether they like it or not. God has made the promise to Abraham and he will fulfill his word. And it is in our lifetime and in the lifetime of our parents and grandparents that the Jews truly have returned. In the prophecies that we have seen these events puts us in very, very interesting times to say the least. But this has always been foretold, destined to be expected, that when this comes, there would be a hostile response. The prophecies are clear. Not everybody will be so excited. First and foremost, the Jews found hostility from the great Roman church. The Pope made clear to Herzl the existence of a restored Israel in the land of the Bible Proof that they, the Jewish people, is not annihilated, assimilated, and withering away is the living refutation of the Christian myth about the Jewish end in the historic process. And this is precisely why the state of Israel has been the most dramatic challenge for the Vatican and the biggest crisis for contemporary Christian theology. This hostility that the Jews felt was because their return, unbeknownst to them maybe, their return blew up the idea of the Jews being replaced, the Jews being simply Christ killers and thrown in the dustbin of, uh, dustbin of history, like the church, Martin Luther, and many others prescribed. Heim Weizmann felt the same. He wrote, the, the Catholics have been chiefly responsible for uniting the Muslims and the Christians against us. Because what the Vatican really wishes is to have something which amounts to power in Palestine. But that Euphrates, in World War I, that power dried up. The Ottoman power was pushed and dried up. It started actually long before World War I. But in its final, like this is, it was, it was much bigger than even what you see on the, uh, on the left. In 1914, that's at the beginning of World War I. It had already been drying up for close to 100 years. But by this point, it was called the sick man of Europe. And the Ottoman power collapsed under the, uh, the attack 
of the British and its allies. At first, many were hopeful for a new Middle East and were hopeful that peace could be achieved. At the Paris Conference, Paris Peace Conference in 1919, the Amer Faisal wrote, We Arabs, especially the educated among us, look with deepest sympathy on the Zionist movement. We will do our best insofar as we are concerned to help them through. We wish the Jews a most hearty welcome home. It was a feeling that didn't last long. And nor did the scriptures expect it to. The mandate for Palestine was given to Britain and encompasses all of Israel today and Jordan. And in fact, the lines drawn there uh, are, uh, in 1920 are very similar to what we have today, almost exactly. The Jews hoped for land also on the east side of the Jordan River, but in the end it fell, as you see here, with Jewish Palestine being, frankly, almost exactly what you have in Israel today uh, if you included the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. This is what the mandate uh, came down for the Jews uh, with that section in the white there. This was July 24th, 1922. The Jews accepted this two-state solution. The Arabs rejected and along would come the Grand Mufti Haj Amin al-Husseini. The pictures are worth a thousand words as he examines the Nazi troops in World War II, tours Treblanka, the death camp, and meets with Hitler. Viciously opposed to Jews in Palestine, and frankly, on as much religious grounds than on political the Palestinian people that so many cry out for today have been used. They have been used by powers outside of the land of Israel that, in my opinion, could care less about them. They will scream and shout, the happiest Arabs living in Israel today whether in, quote, occupied territories or the land, are those living in Israel itself under Jewish government because they themselves sit in the government. The world will yell apartheid, but Jews actually, or Arabs, actually sit in the government. They have Arab parties. They vote. They have an equal vote. They work alongside many of their Jewish cousins. And in fact, in the massacre that took place, one Arab driver actually from East Jerusalem was driving a bus of children down to the music festival. When they found out that he was an Arab, did that save his life? It did not. In a long story short, Britain was tasked with trying to sort out this mess and this international problem. You can see Jerusalem in the partition plan was given a special status. 
That was to also appease the Roman church because they didn't want to see Jews having control over Jerusalem, something that they would have liked themselves. But this, again, was rejected by the Arabs. The vote went to the UN and it was concluded that, yes, Israel could have a state. The Arabs rejected and declared war. The maps show what happened. The partition plan is on the left. The Jewish areas that actually were controlled in the beginning of June 1948 are seen in the Manila color, the tan color in the middle map as they before they're invaded. After the war was concluded, the Palestinians and the Arabs call it the Nakba, the catastrophe. The Jews pushed back right up to the lines uh, known as the pre-1967 lines, the green line as you see it there, not having the Gaza Strip or the West Bank, nor the Golan Heights. And the floodgates opened for Jewish immigration. The Arabs would regather. In 1956, there would be a conflict, but most notably in 1967, Again, they mass on Israel's borders, shouting to push them into the sea. Israel strikes first, and the resulting map on the right is what was finished after six days. Israel had captured the whole of the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and had pushed even further uh, north. In 1973, the Arabs would try again this time catching Israel on the holiest day. Israel would push to the other side of the Sinai and uh, of the, uh, sorry, of the river Euphrates and within 10 miles of Damascus. But this six-day war in 1967 put into Israel's hands very, very important territory as far as Bible prophecy is concerned. Turn with me, if you well, you may still have it open, uh, or actually we did go to Revelation. So turn back to Joel chapter 3. Joel 3, which comes after Daniel, uh, Hosea, Joel. Joel 3. For behold, in Joel 3 and verse 1. For behold... In those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, this is our day. I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. They have partitioned my land. If you look at the modern history of Israel, it is a partition plan after a partition plan after a Trump plan or whoever else's plan. God says, it's my land. But, do you notice, it's the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. On a map, Judah and Jerusalem would be the West Bank, the southern West Bank, um, south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem obviously itself. That prophecy couldn't, didn't, in no sense could it come to pass 
until after 1967 when these lands fell into Jewish hands. Not our topic, but I can't help but note that there are many other prophecies that deal with this, a notable one and also a, uh, you know, in sign and symbol. However, just look at the note in the Bagster's Bible as if uh, these things were unintelligible. They certainly are not. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed or justified. That little note says that is 2,300 years, which is a prophetic uh, time period, uh, taking a day for a year, which reckons from the time that Alexander invaded B.C. 334 will be A.D. 1966. I've got another book actually with me, but for time's sake we won't uh, read from it. It predicted the same from the same prophecy right to the spring to the midsummer of 1967. These events that are going on in Israel are incredible. They line up the prophecies one after the next after the next. Now, we've read this together, Joel 3. Jerusalem and Judah at the heart of the struggle. Do you know, when we go to the land of Israel today, what do we find at the heart of the struggle? The prophecies clearly bring it down to Judah and Jerusalem. And we could go to other verses as well, which we, we may if, uh, with, with time. Just look at the Hamas standard on the left. The Alaska Mosque in the heart. The Alaska Martyrs Brigade, even their name gives it away. Again, with the Alaska Mosque at the heart. The conflict is a religious one. The world speaks about it as if it is simply a land dispute. It is far, far from that. That is a great oversimplification. And we know in time, Iran is involved equally. This didn't always, this was not always the case. Before the uh, Iranian revolution, it was Persia under the Shah. And they were incredibly actually friendly to Israel. But if we look at the prophecies, all nations will come against Israel. And specifically, uh, we'll look at one where Iran is listed against Israel. Now, when we go to Jerusalem, we find the Jews have come home. And uh, I think the following video will be uh, of interest as we consider these things. This is from Vice News, certainly not a pro-Jewish news site. And it's from a documentary called The City Divided, Jerusalem's Most Contested Neighborhood. Maleha Zaytim was built in the early 2000s on the edge of Silwan. We had to go through gates guarded by both police and armed private security to get in and meet with Yishai Fleischer, an advocate for the settlement. It's not fear. It's, uh, it's defense. It's defense. This is a Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem as part of a broader Arab neighborhood. What an opportunity for coexistence, right? How's that working out so far? It's working out okay, except for the forces of jihad. Arabs walk freely in our city, and we should be able to walk freely in our city as well. 
because of the jihadist ideology that's prevalent in this region and at this time, uh, we have to be defensive. And the Jewish people, after a long history of uh, persecution, know what it is to be defensive. And so this neighborhood is closed off to the street level, and it's only our people inside here. Other people want to claim that we are not the indigenous people of this land, that we're foreigners and occupiers, and uh, they want to claim that we're uh, interlopers and uh, somehow... Uh, settlers. Uh, se se well, so the word settlers can be misunderstood different ways, but in any case, right, that's right. They basically think that we don't belong here. Let, let's come and enjoy the uh, beautiful scenery. a little bit here. That's right. That's right. That's right. This is a view that we've been waiting for for 2,000 years. Okay? And, uh, and uh, this is some of my Arab neighbors down there. And uh, this, this is the Temple Mount. This is the focus of Jewish prayer for the last 3,000 years. And um, here's the Mount of Olives, which has seen Jewish burial for the last 3,000 years. So when people tell me that you're living in occupied land, I point to this mountain of history and I ask them, could it be that I'm occupying the ancestral burial grounds of my people? Well, what do you want us to do, pack up our bags and leave? That's not a solution for us. At the heart of the conflict, turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. Saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. What an incredible prophecy. It carries on to talk about the salvation of the tents of Judah first in verse 7. But do you see that at the end, at this time, Judah and Jerusalem, and specifically here Jerusalem, will be at the heart of the conflict and it will be a burdensome stone and a cup of trembling, of reeling unto all people round about. Well, let's go also, this end time, let's go to, we have to take a moment, to Ezekiel chapter 38. This is a prophecy, chapter 38, that is really, we, we quote from it, we look at it a lot. And there's, there's many reasons for that. But it is not a prophecy that is, uh, often we can say the prophecies are vague, 
They are, uh, how can you tell what, when, when they're really for? And, and how do you know they didn't, people try to claim they wrote them themselves? There are all sorts of things that people try to say against uh, the prophecies of the word, often because they're so accurate. However, one of the things that's often said is, how do you know how to interpret it? How can you know that you've interpreted it correctly? The book of Revelation is well worth the discussion. Ezekiel chapter 38, as many other prophecies in the Old Testament, is actually a very literal prophecy. The only thing that makes it a little more difficult is the fact that the list of nations that are here, many of them today, we would not recognize. And so we could say, well, is it unintelligible? Well, certainly, we're not going to spend the time tonight to go through all the nations. However, we will note that this prophecy is... Look at verse 8. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. The RV margin says restored. The land that is restored back from the sword. And is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. So it is a time when the children of Israel are back in their land. Now, this is, when we do the zoom out, it is a great northern confederacy of nations that come against Israel. Uh, It gives you the list of nations at the beginning, but it says, verse 15, that they've come out of the north parts, or the RV says, out of the uttermost parts of the north. So here's a prophecy of a great northern confederacy of nations coming against my people Israel, verse 16, from this, from the north. So a great northern confederacy coming against my people in the latter days. Uh, also mentioning in verse 16 is against my land. Now, again, this could not have been in any way fulfilled until the children of Israel were back in their land as they are today. But this northern confederacy of nations When they come against Israel, they come against Israel in a very unusual um, situation. And I say unusual because we're so used to Israel being in in a state of conflict, in a state of war, uh, and in fact, uh, the farthest thing from peace that we might imagine. Verse 11, he says of this northern confederacy and the leader, he says to the leader of the northern confederacy, Thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to those that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. He comes, when they comes, when this northern confederacy of nations comes down against Israel, it is when Israel is dwelling at peace. No walls, no bars, no gates. Now, I've been to Israel. I've been into the West Bank. I'm not sure if there's a land that has more bars, more walls, and more gates than Israel. Almost all the settlements are gated. In fact, it's not only the settlements in Israel that are gated. As we'll see, I have a picture in a bit. You'll see one of the settlements that was invaded by Hamas was gated. They're all, all around the Gaza Strip. They're gated, and they're you know all they have uh, they have these bomb shelters in in all their homes. We stayed in an apartment in um, in Jerusalem 
And in mo as most apartments, one room is a safe room that has, uh, you know, extra thick walls, a solid steel door. This is how Israel lives. They do not know what peace tastes like. This description of what's going to be in Israel seems impossible. And yet, friends, this is what we expect. And this is at the heart of the conflict today. Because if we go back to 2020, the Abraham Accords were signed. If we go back further, we have the uh, agreement after 1973 between Egypt and Jordan and Israel. But that was a cold peace. They stopped fighting, but they didn't necessarily work together. The Abraham Accords were something that the world had never dreamed of. A warm peace. The southern Gulf states, even Saudi Arabia, seemed to give it the nod. And yet Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, the PLO, which is now Fatah, all these northern Arab nations or peoples were furious. They said they were stabbed in the back. In fact, so much so that shortly after the Abraham Accords were signed, the Saudi prince Bandar bin Salman, he spoke actually in a, uh, in it's, it's a lengthy uh, interview uh, on, an, on, the, on a Saudi news station, Al Arabia, in an exclusive interview. And uh, this is his comment in part three, speaking of Arafat's refusal of the uh, Camp David Accords in 2000. He said when he heard that Arafat refused the peace agreement because it was uh, the vast majority of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip was offered to the Palestinians and Arafat refused them. And this is what he said. I wanted to cry. My heart was burning at how the opportunity was lost again and perhaps for the last time as if I was seeing a movie playing in front of my eyes. An opportunity comes and it is lost. How on earth did the Palestinians refuse peace again? The two-state solution was almost there. It begs the question, was it God's will? If so much happens in the land of Israel, was this God's will? Well, the Abraham Accords more recently seemed ready to expand. This is from the United States Institute of Peace on September the 28th of this year. In recent months, a drumbeat has built around the U.S. effort to negotiate a normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. The deal would be a tectonic shift in the Middle East geopolitics, but it also carries major implications for other actors beyond the three negotiating parties. Israel would, of course, benefit from the normalized relations with the Saudis, long seen as the holy grail of potential normalization agreements for the country. The Saudis, in turn, would see their interests advance through strengthened U.S. partnership in key areas. But this deal could also have serious implications for the future of the Palestinian national movement. Well, that was on September 28th. There would be serious implications, they mused, for the Palestinian national movement 
if the Saudi deal went down? Well, in that same interview with the, uh, with the gentleman from Saudi Arabia, he ends by saying that the, the leaders of the Palestinians essentially were uh, liars and everything else. And he is trying to, in that, uh, in that interview, clear the record. It did seem as if Saudi Arabia may have been re- ready to move forward. Now, what I have next for you is another... It's, uh, it's a video of Netanyahu who spoke on September the 22nd, again of this year. Ladies and gentlemen, over three millennia ago, our great leader Moses addressed the people of Israel as they were about to enter the Promised Land. He said they would find there two mountains facing one another. Mount Gerizim, the site on which a great blessing would be proclaimed, and Mount Ebal, the site of a great curse. Moses said that the people's fate would be determined by the choice they made between the blessing and the curse. That same choice has echoed down the ages, not just for the people of Israel, but for all humanity. We face such a choice today. It will determine whether we enjoy the blessings of a historic peace, of boundless prosperity and hope, or suffer the curse of a horrific war of terrorism and despair. The response to Netanyahu's interview or his speech at the UN was very clear, and you can go and uh, hear it for yourself at home. On October the 4th, three days before the massacres went down, normalization with Israel is betting on a losing horse, the Tehran Times said. Operation Alaska Flood took place on the 7th of October. Do you know, it's interesting when we come to the scriptures. It's horrific what happened. It's a pogrom like we have never imagined in our day. But an Alaska flood, do you know, the river Euphrates dried up. They would like for it to flood its banks again with the renewed caliphate. 6.30 a.m. Captured on camera the Hamas terrorists storing the Erez border crossing in the North Gaza Strip. It seems dozens of locations terrorists broke through the fence and swarmed Israel. Now, I also put there, it's the Simcha Torah Massacre, which is the, uh, it's a holy day for Israel. At the end of the 
Feast of Tabernacles and a day when they come and read the Torah together. And on this day, the terrorists struck. We have seen these pictures. And here they are entering Kibbutz Biri at 7.11, the same morning. You can still see the sun is just coming up. 1,300 would be massacred in barbaric acts, not even the likes they say ISIS committed. Iran would like to entice the Middle East to unite against Israel. They would love and dream of the power of the Euphrates flooding its banks and liberating the Alaska Mosque and pushing the Jews into the sea. As they cry, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. The world noticed. Here's Politico. Iran's support for Hamas fans suspicions it's wrecking the Israel-Saudi deal. Israel understands the danger. Netanyahu called it their moment. This is their moment for never again. Now, as you know, that is big language. And if you don't know, Israel said they would never have another Holocaust. They would never be a defenseless people again. In order to, uh, in order to uh, facilitate a never-again scenario, they developed the nuclear bomb, calling it the Samson option. If you know your uh, story of Samson, in his, final, uh, in his final moments, he brought down the uh, great temple of uh, Baal in the Gaza Strip, actually, as it is today, killing many of Israel's enemies, but himself at the same time. Israel, calling this the never again moment, realizes for every one of us what it feels like to be in Israel now. Do you know, when those events took place, Israel had barely responded. They had not entered the Gaza Strip. And yet... In Sydney, Australia, the, the mob chanted, gas the Jews. What on earth do those in Saudi Arabia have against the Jewish people? Sorry, in, uh, did I say it was in Australia? In Australia. You know, all over the world we have seen anti-Semitism explode on a level we have never seen before. Not in our lives. The Vatican came out today with a solution. Jerusalem out of Jewish hands. That is effectively what they are calling for. Those are two peoples who have to live together, he said. With that wise solution, two states. The Oslo Accords, two well-defined states. And Jerusalem with a special status. That is what the Vatican has always called for. A special status. 
Jews not in control of Jerusalem. At the heart of this conflict, the prophecies told us Jerusalem would be there, the burdensome stone. Do you know, it's, it is, friends, an incredible set of events we are watching unfold. In Revelation 16 that we mentioned, in that, in that uh, section of the sixth vial, at the end when he says, I come as a thief, he then gathers them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. In the Hebrew tongue. Because the Jews are home. Do you know, this great invasion that we have in Ezekiel chapter 38 is against my people, God says. Do you know, already, Bahrain has expelled the Israeli ambassador and recalled theirs and canceled the peace agreements. It seems the UAE and Saudi Arabia is not quite at that level yet. Will Iran accomplish the end of the Abraham Accords? Will they be able to have another uh, overflowing of the Euphratean power? They will not. That peace, it may, the, what happens from now until that peace, I cannot tell you. How we get to that peace, we can muse, we can look at this, we can look at that. But the prophecies are clear. The peace will come. But when that peace comes, it seems it will not be for long. The nations in the north certainly will not be happy about it. The Vatican will not be happy about it. Iran will not be happy about it. John Thomas in 1869 writes in Eureka, It may be remarked here there will have been a considerable gathering of Israelites upon the mountains of Israel before the invasion of Gog and his capture of Jerusalem. This appears from the Spirit's address to Gog in the 8th verse of the chapter. Now if we look at verse 8, it says that the Jews that are there, he says they'll be brought back, they'll be in the, in the latter years, they'll be brought back and gathered out of many people at the, in the middle of the verse against the mountains of Israel. Those mountains of Israel is the center, Jerusalem and Judah, in the center of the prophecy. Now, in that chapter, Ezekiel 38, and I'm happy to discuss this with anyone afterwards. Chapter 38 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. The Gog that we're speaking about in this is Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. That Rosh, many have looked at this over the years, including Loth in the 1700s, and he came to the same conclusion that it was, uh, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll see. It is located, obviously, in the uttermost parts of the north, as we mentioned, the remotest parts of the north in the Hebrew. 
Rosh is translated head or chief. The question is, is it, an, is it a nation that we know today? That is the question. That's the burning question of many that have studied this prophecy. In the Hebrew, it seems somewhat unknown to us as a nation. But in the Greek translation of the Bible that was done 280 BC, so that's 2,300 years ago plus, it was translated, and I won't try and say it, in this Greek word there, uh, as we, it looks almost like to us a PWC. Who is that nation? Well, in the Greek, Gibbon's Decline and Fall says the name of the Russians. Among the Greeks, this national appellation has the singular form as it is there, Rosh. The Septuagint translators chose that word, which today is still a word we know. If you type it into Google, if you copy it out of the Greek text and type it in, it comes up with the Kievian Rus. They used, the Greek translators used a word that the Byzantines and the Greeks used as the early word for Russia. The news have been wondering, is Putin behind this? No doubt Iran is involved. Is Putin involved? The National Post today reported Russia's uh, for he's the uh, ambassador to the UN. Israel has no right to defend itself against Hamas. Do you know how Israel defends itself is not for our discussion tonight. That Israel will exist and continue to exist and will reach a time of peace before the nations truly gather against them, we can expect. The Lord shall also, will also roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. These are not my words. These are not the words of a news commentator. These words are thousands of years old and apply to our time and our day. The question is, what is the Bible's answer of hope? Our title was twofold. What does God think? I think it's clear what he thinks in that it is his work to bring the Jewish people home. It is his work to fulfill the covenants that he made with the forefathers thousands of years ago. But the Bible's answer of hope is an incredible story. It's an incredible story of what next and also how we ourselves can have a part in the great uh, work to come in not just the land of Israel, but the world over. God has given us prophecies, many prophecies, that speak of what is to come. That is for Dave next week. And we hope you'll, uh, we hope you'll join us for that. And if you've got any questions, please, I'd be happy to uh, speak to you about them. There is much we haven't discussed. And so uh, we, we look forward to our time together again. Thank you.